Well, if you have your Bibles, you can turn to Luke again. Can you believe that? We're back in Luke. We're not only in Luke, we're in Luke 14, which is huge. What's huger still is I'm going to preach on 15 verses this morning. Miracles are still happening in the world today. So if you run into a cessationist, you can just tell them it happened and it happened today. I was just reading, what I do is I, I, I keep reading ahead where we're going to be headed just so I'm really familiar when we finally get to where we're going to be. And I just was going to preach three sermons in these first 15 verses, but each of the sections that I was going to preach on individually just has one big main point. And I thought, you know, we'll just turn it into a three-part sermon and do a big text as a change we learned at the end of chapter 13 that Jesus is, you know, working his way towards Jerusalem. He's stopping by in little villages and towns, doing miracles, preaching uh, the gospel, calling sinners to repentance. And and some Pharisees approach him and say, Herod wants to kill you. Get out of our town. And he says, no. And he's not worried. He's not fearful about Herod killing him because he knows who is Lord. He's Lord, not Herod. He knows who is in control. He is not them. He knows he's going to die in Jerusalem and nobody is going to kill him anywhere else before that time. And so he just continues ministering in that town. Well, you know, When the bad guy, when your enemy is in town and you can't drive him away, then the next best thing to do is invite him over. You know, as the saying goes, um, stick close to your friends and stick closer to your enemies. So the leader of the Pharisees invites Jesus over to his house. And our text is about that thing. Now, usually I read um, this section because it's long. I'm just going to read it. We'll discover as we go. But from these first 15 verses of Luke 14, we're presented with three traits of true godliness. Each of these sections teaches us about a, a really a, a major trait that we all need to possess and have in order to be saved and to please Christ in this world. And the first is this, acknowledge Jesus as Lord. Look at verse 1. And it happened that when he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, and just stop there and remember, it was the Pharisees who wanted Jesus to leave. He wouldn't. So then the leader says, well, why don't you come over to my house? That way you won't corrupt our city with your miracles and teaching. And so look at the middle of verse 1. And it was on the Sabbath to eat bread. And they were watching him closely. So he's invited in to have what is called the Sabbath meal, which they would prepare the day before. And uh, obviously, this leader of the Pharisees is probably very rich, as many of them were, and uh, and invited Jesus over for this Sabbath meal. But, you know, they're, they're not practicing hospitality here. Uh, this is a den of hungry snakes, and they want to have Jesus as their next meal. Notice that uh, verse 1 says, um, uh, he went into the house of one of the leaders of the Pharisees, but then it goes on to say, and they were watching him closely. So it's not just one. It's a group of somebody who we will discover in a minute is not only Pharisees, but um, some a lawyer, some experts in the law of Moses. Look at verse 2. And there in front of him was a man suffering from dropsy. Now, dropsy is not a term we usually use today. It's kind of an older designation for what we know today as edema. Uh, when people have congestive heart failure, what happens is their soft tissues using their feet and legs swell up. You may have seen people with this. Uh, uh, you may have had this. Um, it's just a, a swelling uh, of the body uh, is called dropsy. And it kind of, you know, you have to ask yourself, how'd the guy get in the house? Who invited him to the party? Well, he's not a Pharisee and he's not a lawyer. So most likely they found somebody who was visibly um, sick, visibly diseased. And they brought that person in and just happened to kind of loiter them in front of Jesus. And uh, they, they have an agenda. They're going to try and entrap Jesus that they might accuse him. But look at verse three. When Jesus answered and spoke to the lawyers and the Pharisees, 
uh, this is who is there, lawyers and Pharisees. So now we understand who's there. Uh, Jesus said, is it lawful to heal somebody on the Sabbath or not? He just like comes out with it. He beats him to the punch. Um, he, before what has happened is a lot of times, you know, he's healed and then they've accused him. Now he just asks him outright, you know, he beats him to the punch. And so, um, he just, you know, says, okay, is it lawful to heal on the Sabbath or not? Let's get it out on the table. I know what you're thinking. I know I am here. I know you're not trying to be nice to me. You put this man in front of me because you want me to heal him. So that you can accuse me of breaking the Sabbath. Because at that time, the rabbis taught that you could not heal somebody on the Sabbath unless their life was in danger. You know, if they they were going to die that day, yes, heal them. Otherwise, wait till the next day to fix them. So that was the prevailing thought at the time. Of course, Jesus had healed other people. In Luke chapter 4, he healed a demon-possessed man on the Sabbath. In Luke chapter 6, remember, he had his disciples pick some heads of grain while the religious leaders were watching, you know, rubbed them in their hands, blew the chaff out and ate the grain, which made him mad. And Jesus then told him that, that he was Lord of the Sabbath. By the way, I am Lord of the Sabbath. And in saying that, he's saying, I instituted the Sabbath. I created the Sabbath. I run the Sabbath as well. The rest of the universe. I can do what I want on the Sabbath. Okay, um, is basically what he's saying. In Luke chapter 6, verses 6 to 11, he healed the man with the withered hand on the Sabbath. They were filled with rage. In Luke chapter 13, which is just pretty much in the near context of our text, he healed the woman who had been sick for 18 years in the synagogue on the Sabbath in front of everybody. So Jesus has been pushing this issue. He wants them to realize that it's not only acceptable, but necessary to do good on the Sabbath. That healing somebody on the Sabbath is not breaking the Sabbath. And they knew this. You know, word gets around when you're traveling around the country with, you know, crowds of 10,000 plus healing all manner of disease and sickness, raising the dead, calming storms. You know, that stuff gets around. After you do it for three years in a small country. So they all knew about him. This was not anything new to them. Jesus is at the end of his ministry. And they are very well aware of what Jesus is doing. They are very um, irritated at him. Because multiple times he has exposed their religious hypocrisy. And so they just can't bring themselves to believe that Jesus is the Messiah. It's pretty obvious who Jesus is. Uh, you know, you just don't. Feed 5,000 ex nihilo out of nothing uh, with, you know, without being God or calm a storm or raise the dead. You know, those are pretty major things that only God can do. And it goes to show really that salvation is from God. There's always this false prevailing attitude that if we could just see a miracle, if we could just, you know, go to heaven and come back, if we could just see God do something really incredible, all the unbelievers would see it and then they just drop down on their faces and repent and give their life to Christ. Yeah, like those people who saw the 10 plagues who were led out of Egypt and saw the pillar of fire across the Red Sea, had manna uh, every day from heaven. How they all dropped dead in the wilderness because of unbelief. Yeah, miracles don't save anybody. And these people, these religious leaders here before Jesus had seen many, 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 many miracles. They were still not believing, which just goes to show that it takes God's grace to move into a person's life, to grant them repentance, to open their eyes, to soften their heart, to illumine them to the truth so they can see their need and be saved because men on their own, because they love their sins so desperately, will not let go of it. So Jesus asked them to commit. Is it okay to heal on the Sabbath or not? And you can just see him there. You got to picture this in your mind. Here's Jesus, you know. I mean, he's he's barely into his early 30s, which in that culture, you were just still a punk kid. He can barely minister as a rabbi. And he's around all of these people and, you know, big gray beards and long tassels and, and robes. And maybe some have phylacteries, you know, little box of law slashed on their head and, 
you know, the law written on tassels wrapped around their arms. And, you know, they're very Jewish. They look Jewish. These guys who are Pharisees have memorized huge chunks of the scripture. And not only that, not only have they done this, but what's amazing is, is there's all these lawyers there who are like, you know, super hyper fanatic Bible thumpers. And so Jesus is in this room as the young kid. And he asks him a very easy question. Can you heal on the Sabbath or not? And they all know the answer. They all know the answer instantaneously according to their tradition. But they keep silent. They keep silent. The question is, why did they keep silent? Because I think they're thinking that they want to see Jesus heal this guy. So they can accuse him. Of breaking the Sabbath. That, that's what they're after. You see, they couldn't bring themselves to acknowledge Jesus's lordship over the Sabbath, that he was Lord of all, that he was in charge. They just couldn't handle it because Jesus exposed their sin and they saw themselves as righteous, as good, as holy men. And so they're all looking around. Each of them, after Jesus asked the questions, wondering, nobody's saying anything. Why don't you say something? You say something. And so Jesus then, as they're all looking, as they're all crowded into this house, lots of them, reaches forward, touches the man with dropsy and just heals him with the power of God right before their eyes. Now, that would have been pretty shocking when you think about it. Just, you know, whoa. I don't care how many times you've seen it. When God does a miracle, it's stunning. And so he does it right in front of their faces. You know, this is the in-your-face Sabbath healing. Jesus wields the power of God. There's no smoke, no mirrors, no strings or velvety curtains or special lighting effects. He just heals them right in front of their faces after asking them the question. You know, and you can just see Jesus's patience with them. You know, he's he is trying so hard to I, I mean, how else could he do it? OK, the Messiah comes. He's supposed to come. He's supposed to be able to be a prophet, to do the works of God. You all know that it's in your scriptures. He's going to come help the lame walk and heal the sick. And you, you know that in your scriptures. Right. And uh, so let me show you that. Be healed. Did you see that? Did you see that again? Like you have maybe hundreds, maybe even thousands of times before they followed him around. We've seen him. They follow him around the country. Probably many in the same group. And and before they even have an opportunity to, to, to respond, to accuse him of, oh, you broke the Sabbath. Jesus then again heads them off of the past. Look at verse five. And he said to them, which one of you? We'll have a son or an ox fall into a well and will not immediately pull him out on the Sabbath day. You know, he said pretty much the same thing in Luke 13, verse 15. Yeah, they knew. Jesus knew. They knew that if their son fell into a well, they wouldn't say, hey, hope you don't die and drown there. We'll see you tomorrow when the sun comes up. No, they would rescue their son. They would even rescue their animal. And that's why it says, if you look at verse six again, and they could make no reply to this. In other words, they would not make a reply. First, they kept silent. Now they can't speak. Why? Because if they speak, they will reveal themselves to be hypocrites because they know the answer to this question. Jesus knows the answer. They know the answer. And so they they can't speak because if they do, then they'll show their hand that they're religious hypocrites. And as I was thinking about this, and I just thought about this whole situation, it reminded me of the text in John 3. Let me just read to you. It's, you all know, and as soon as I read it, you'll go, oh, yeah. Now, there was a man of the Pharisees named Nicodemus, a ruler of the Jews. This man came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you have come from God as a teacher for no one can do these signs that you do unless God is with him. 
you know, maybe this is Nicodemus's house. Maybe he comes to Christ after this. I don't know. Um, but what we can know for certain is this. The Pharisees knew beyond a shadow of a doubt that Jesus had to be the Messiah. I mean, they just say it. We know that you are from God. No one can do these things. I mean, no, it doesn't take a huge IQ to, you know, see somebody healed and say, you know, I'm the son of David, the righteous branch. This prophecy is about me. I'm the Messiah. You believe in me, you know, fulfill all those prophecies. You guys all know because you're experts of the law, you know, to fulfill those things time and time again. And to not understand who Jesus is. And they knew it. Their problem was not with knowing. Their problem was with submitting to Jesus as the Lord. They did not want to humble themselves. They did not want to acknowledge their sin. They did not want to submit to Jesus as Lord. But. This is the first great principle of true godliness. If you're going to be godly, you must submit to Jesus as Lord. There's no other way. Godliness begins, continues, and will continue on into eternity with that great principle in mind. Jesus is the Lord, the master, the king, the Messiah, the one we must submit to. You remember what the angels told the shepherds the night of Jesus' birth in Luke 2.11, for today in the city of David, there has been born for you a savior who is Christ, the Lord, the Messiah, the Lord. It is what Peter preached to the Jews at the birth of the church. What did he tell them? The first sermon he preaches, he says, therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him, Jesus, both Lord and Christ. This Jesus whom you crucified. That was the message preached. Jesus is Lord. Are you going to submit to him or not? It's what Paul wrote to the Corinthians in 2 Corinthians 4 or 5. For we do not preach ourselves, but Christ Jesus as Lord. That's what they did. They went around preaching Jesus as Lord. Paul says in Romans 10, 9, for if you confess with your mouth Jesus as Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. It's all the way through the New Testament. You can't escape it. Jesus is Lord. The question is, is he your Lord? Is he your Lord? That is the issue. And when I ask the question, you know, I've learned that people are kind of slippery about this. So let me be very specific. I'm not asking you if you acknowledge that Jesus exists as Lord. He does. I am not saying, do you give mental assent to that fact? What I'm asking you is, Is Jesus the one who rules your life as Lord of you? That's what I'm asking. Do you let him rule your time, your money, your lusts, your passions, your gifts, your work, your play, what you listen to, what you watch? Is Jesus Lord of your life? If you only believe in Jesus who is savior, who is going to rescue you from hell, give you a good marriage, help you raise up obedient little children, make wise financial decisions. That's not good enough. It's Jesus, the Lord, the controller, the king, the Messiah, the one who needs to reign in your life. And maybe you're out there. Maybe you're one of those people and we run into them here at Calvary. And your Christianity just isn't working. Oh, you agree with the gospel facts and you understand that Jesus is the Lord of heaven and earth. Yes, yes, yes. But he's not your Lord. You say the right things, but in your heart, you don't want that man reigning over you. You don't want him telling you what to do. I mean, you want to escape hell, but you don't want a ruler that you have to submit to in every area of your life. 
both in thought and deed. But when you come to Christ for salvation, that's what you have to do in order to be saved. That is the beginning of true godliness to come to realize you are a sinner, that Jesus is Savior, Lord, Christ, and submitting to him because he is Lord, believing in him because he did live a perfect life, died on the cross and was buried for our sins, and understanding Jesus Christ as Lord and him crucified and resurrected, you then are transformed. And then you begin the life of trying to, like all of us who know Christ, trying to submit to him more efficiently. Because while we know we need to do that, it seems like it's a never-ending task and we need to submit to him in never-ending degrees. And if we don't, then he brings little circumstances into our life to make sure we learn the lesson. And we all know how painful that is. But he does it because he loves us, because he wants us to learn to submit you know, every time it happens, you know, it just comes upon me, uh, all these things, and I just can't do it all. It's not working. And then I just realize, oh, Lord, I need you. And I realize, no, I always need him. You mean I don't need you when I'm feeling good? I don't need you when I've got money. I don't need you when I'm satisfied in myself course i need him more really then than i do when i'm sick and on my back and desperate yes we need jesus and we need to submit to jesus as lord and this is the the first continuing and last principle of true godliness jesus is lord and he is trying to teach them that i want to show you something see this sick man here i'm gonna heal him you know why because i'm lord Secondly, flowing from that as a necessary outcome of that, we need to practice humility. Look at verse seven. And he began speaking a parable to the invited guests. Now, these are all the Pharisees and lawyers here. When he noticed how they had been picking out the places of honor at the table. Jesus was so good at observing people. I just... I just like this. He, he, you know, when you watch it, he just goes through. He sees things in nature. He sees how people act. He sees little attitudes and little things and what they say and do. And and he could just like turn anything in an opportunity to preach. It's great. Look at verse eight. And Jesus continued saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, you know, for instance, do not take the place of honor for someone more distinguished than you may have been invited And he who invited you both will come and say to you, give your place to this man. And then in disgrace, you proceed to occupy the last place. You know, you're invited over to someone's house and there's a lot of other people are in the entryway or crammed in the kitchen. And the host says, listen, everybody, dinner's going to be in 30 minutes. Head out to the living room and get a place. What do you think? What goes through your mind? Are you one of those people who thinks, man, I'm getting there quick so I can get a good seat, a good seat. That's right. You know, I'm afraid that many people clamor for the best seats without thinking of other people. I've seen this especially in youth who I think without even thinking it just comes so natural to us since we're sinners and we're selfish. And in youth, not having grown in the Lord much or maybe not even knowing Christ, you just think, hey, man, I want a good seat. You know, so you bolt there and leave all the seniors to stand and work on their varicose veins. And at times I have uh, had to remove youth from their high place and tell them to sit on the floor in a low place so that those older people can be honored. Growing up in a family of eight children, you know, our family was formidable. People hardly ever invited us over. You don't invite over 10 people, you know. (laughs) I mean, we could go into any room and just fill up any room, you know, and play with all the you know, Ming Dynasty vases, and it was, you know, it was scary. It was scary. Um, And our parents told us, though, from a very young age and repeatedly told us and warned us every time we went somewhere, do not sit in the chairs. Why? Because we would just, like, clog the house. We'd take up every seat. So we would just instantly go in and sit on the floor so that the older people could sit in the good seats. 
you know, and when we came over, man, it was scary because, you know, we didn't really, we, we didn't know anything about used food. You know what used food is? Is the food that waits to the next day. We never had used food at our house. There was no resurrected anything the next day. We were like locusts. Whatever was put on the table disappeared every single night. So, you know, if you invited us over, we just kind of came in for. So my mom and dad had to tell us, you know, make sure you sit on the floor. Just sit on the floor. And uh, they didn't give us, you know, insights into this, but they, they saw what was happening. We were just clueless, you know. Hey, there's a big chair. I'm going for it, you know. It's like, hey, the world's about me, you know. And that's what we thought. And, you know, you might be out there thinking, yeah, those youth. They're so proud and selfish. I'm glad I'm not young anymore, but just be careful. We could talk about wanting a good parking place at Calvary Bible Church. (laughs) If we wanted to get nasty, you know, get that good spot. So the senior citizens and mothers with little kids, you know, could hike here from the North 40. Mm hmm. Mm hmm. But as long as we get a good spot, that's what matters. Or maybe we could talk about church potlucks. When you know there's going to be a potluck, uh, we're going to eat at a certain time. And so you start navigating towards the back corner near the door. So you can bolt for that place or you can get in lane first. So you can get the first to eat the best of the food. And then, of course, get that nice place as well. Of course, you would never do that, would you? <laughs> it's pretty quiet in here. <laughs> we do this, man. We're good at it. You ever argue over the remote? What you're going to watch, what you're going to eat? Sure. You want to be first? You want to be best? Now, yeah, we're all factories of pride. I mean, selfishness just flows through our veins. And this is the, what you have to realize is humility comes on purpose. Pride comes naturally without thinking, without making an effort. Selfishness and pride come easy. But humility is an act of will against our will. And we know that James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5 says, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. You don't want God to oppose you. I mean, you go through the Bible, it's scary the kind of things that happen to proud people who are really proud. Now you think of Nabal. You remember Nabal in 1 Samuel 25, the, wife, the husband of uh, Abigail? You remember David and his men, they're running from Saul. And David and his men are like, you know, in, in their prime. They're young men in their 20s. They've got energy. They're buffed, man. They're like assassins. They're warriors. And they're cruising around the country trying to do the will of God and not get killed. But, you know, if David wasn't their leader, they would have been pirates probably. And David shows up to Nabal, who's, of course, name means fool. Now, you ever wonder who would call their kid that? (laughs) You know, you're at the hospital. Honey, what should we put on the birth certificate? Come on, we got to decide. Let's call him fool. Uh, it just doesn't seem very good. It was kind of a self-fulfilling prophecy in Nabal's case. And so Nabal tells David, listen, who are you? I don't know you. I mean, you know, everybody can just come around here asking for food. Who are you? Get out of here. And sends him packing. Well, his wife, who was anything but foolish, Abigail, realizes that her husband Nabal has just signed his own death warrant, hurriedly gathers up a bunch of food because David's men probably would have come in there and struck him down and taken whatever they wanted. So Nabal's wife, Abigail, takes a bunch of food, quick and runs, humbles herself before David, gives him and his men all of this food, and she decides to tell her husband. But she has to wait because he's home getting drunk. And we read this in 1 Samuel 25, 37 and 38. In the morning when the wine had gone out of Nabal, his wife told him these things, that she spared his life. 
and his heart died within him so that he became like a stone, probably had a stroke. Verse 38 says, about 10 days later, the Lord struck Nabal and he died. God is opposed to the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. We could talk about Jezebel, you know, who decided that because she heard her husband kind of lamenting that he couldn't have Naboth's vineyard, decided to falsely accuse Naboth, try him and have him executed. So her husband, the king, could have that vineyard. And she was very proud about it and boasted about how she snaggled that vineyard away from a guy unjustly. Of course, there was a little prophecy about her. And one day that prophecy came true. She's up in her palace and she's painting her eyes, putting on her makeup and doing her hair. So she gets all beautiful before they cast her out the window. She bounces off the castle walls, blooding them up before she hits the ground with a splat. Then the horses trample upon her in the street. And then finally, they think, well, maybe we ought to go and pick up her carcass and bury it. But they go out there, the dogs had eaten her. Or we could talk about Nebuchadnezzar, who was a very proud man. The Lord said, you know, you're proud. And I don't want you to be this way anymore. You better stop. You do this again, there's going to be serious consequences. So what happens is it's not Babylon the great that I have built. Then seven years of eating grass like an ox until he learned his lesson. Or we could talk about Herod Agrippa in Acts chapter 12. You remember the story? Acts chapter 12. There he is. He's giving a speech. And the people go, oh, it's the voice of a God and not a man. He's like, man, I like this. I really like this. And he's soaking up the glory that should have been given to the Lord like a dry sponge. And then remember what the text says? Verse 23, and immediately the angel of the Lord struck him because he did not give God the glory and he was eaten by worms and died. That's exactly opposite of how it usually works. Usually you die, are buried, and then the worms eat you. In this instance, they ate him so that he died and then they buried him and then they ate him the rest of the way. God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And Jesus goes on to illustrate this. Look at verse 10 in our text. He says, but when you are invited, go and recline at the last place so that when the one who has invited you comes, he may say, friend, move up higher. Then you will have honor in the sight of all who are at the table with you. Apparently, these Pharisees and lawyers were so eager to have a place of honor that they didn't even stop and ask the host where they should sit or be Seated by the host, they just grab the places of honor. And imagine sitting in a room with Jesus, the Messiah, the great prophet predicted in the Old Testament, the King of kings and Lord of lords, creator of heaven and earth. And to let him sit in the bad place while you clamor for the good place. Mm, that is not good. Jesus decides to kind of thrust in the sword the rest of the way look at verse 11 for everyone who exalts himself will be humbled and he who humbles himself will be exalted that appear that phrase appears over and over again in the new testament proverbs 25 6 and 7 says do not claim honor in the presence of the king of course that's what Jesus was, the king. And do not stand in the place of great men, for it is better that it be said to you, come up here, than for you to be placed lower in the presence of the prince whom your eyes have seen. You know, there's nothing wrong with being honored by other people. I mean, if it happens, it happens. You know, you try and take it with humility. You try and give glory to God. People come up and say, oh, Pastor Jack, this is a great sermon. And what you don't hear me saying is, Lord, you be the glory. You be the glory. A few years back, I was at uh, this seminary banquet. And and so it was at the Shepherds Conference Week, like it always was. And, and I thought Lisa had signed us up. And she thought I signed us up. And so right before we're ready to go, I just called a couple hours right before that. We were dressed and we were ready to go. And I called up and said, you know, what time is this starting? 
And the secretary said, uh, well, it's starting at you know, such and such a time, but you aren't signed up. And it was then I realized that since neither of us signed us up, we weren't signed up. <laughs> we just thought that each other signed us up, but we all took that for granted, never really checking. And then we finally kind of got synchronized. We realized we don't get to go. So then we thought, well, well let's just go on a date. So he said, okay. So anyways, uh, we got the kids distributed or whatever. And we're getting ready to go. When we get a phone call, a place is opened up. You can come to the bank. Well, well great. So we're all dressed up. We're ready to go. We shoot over there. And, you know, before we had been, you know, a lot of other times before, you know, you, you get your number, which is your table number. And, you know, we were usually at the table 38 or 42 back in the dark corner of, you know, whatever large room they're in. But this time they gave us the table and it said one on there. And I thought, what is this? It's like, man, they must have reversed the orders and put ones in the back and, you know, <laughs> table 50 in the front or whatever. And, and uh, so they, they, we went up there and realized we were sitting in, like, right in the front with John MacArthur and Dr. Mayhew and uh, Ian Murray, who is uh, general editor of Banner of Truth Publishing, this incredible writer, godly man, conference speaker. It's like, oh, so, you know, we felt like, you know, guppies in an ocean full of killer whales. I mean, it was it was a little intimidating. And of course, all my classmates, you know, who were sitting back there with their binoculars saying, is Jack up there? <laughs> what? They made a mistake. He's, he's one of us. So we suffered through it. Every once in a while that might happen. Every once in a while that happened. I'm still waiting for, you know, that accident to happen where I get to five first class. It hasn't quite happened yet, but someday, someday I might die before it happens. But, um, yeah, somebody honors you. That's fine. Somebody, God blesses you. Fine. Give glory to God. Be thankful. That's fine. But don't seek it. Don't seek it. And I just want you to know, if you're used to being honored, it gets more and more difficult to be humble. Because you think, you know, when you come into the room, they should throw down the red carpet. And you know, can I kiss your ring? Sure. <laughs> you know, and pretty soon you think you're something when you're not. And then humbling yourself becomes increasingly more difficult because you you become deceived that you're really just a sinner saved by grace and everything you have has been given to you by God. And you know, when it says God um, will humble you if you exalt yourself and exalt you if you humble yourself, uh, it is clear here that God's the one doing that. He will humble the proud and he will exalt the humble. Do you remember when Mary said in her Magnificat in Luke one fifty two, she said he has brought down rulers from their thrones and exalted those who are humble. Isn't that interesting? All the princes and kings and all those who have the pomp and this world got pomp for a little while. Those who humbled themselves and were, well, I don't know, the street sweepers and the far edges of the city in the ghetto those people who feared God, those are the people who are going to be greatly exalted in the kingdom of heaven. You know, you may be one of those people. You may be one of those people. No one knows you are. You may, have n- you may never make it up here to this incredible place of honor. Um, <laughs> this is nothing more so people can throw rocks at you. So it's, you know. But yeah, you, you may never make it up from and nobody knows that you're a you know, super leader or whatever. You may never write a book or whatever. Yeah. You know, just serve the Lord. Be godly. Be the godly mom, the behind-the-scenes person. Let others take the fame. Let others take. And what happened is, is they're, when we get to heaven, they're going to be so far back there, they're going to need a telescope to see you next to Jesus on the platform. Because he's not going to let you outgive him. He is going to honor those who choose to humble themselves but if you're proud and you're stubborn and you won't bend and you're looking for attention and fame and accolades and praise in this life god will swat you down and he'll make sure you learn your lesson it'll be painful the third 
great characteristic of godliness we find in the text is give out of love, not earthly reward. And this is another manifestation of having Jesus be Lord of your life and living in humility. And look at what the text says in verse 12. And he went also on to say um, to the one who had invited him. So notice the for Jesus first, uh, Jesus's courage is amazing. I mean, he's the young man in the room. But what does he do? He first goes after everybody universally. Do you guys clamor for places of position? And then, you know, he drives in the sword, twists the blade. Now he goes for the host, the leader of the whole group of them, this ruler of the whole group, to the one who invited him. And he says to the leader, look at the middle of verse 12, when you give a luncheon or dinner, do not invite your friends, implied like these men, or your brother, implied like these men, or your relatives, like these men, or rich neighbors, like these men. Otherwise, they might also invite you in return, and that will be a repayment. How? <laughs> Don't invite people like this to your house. <laughs> and all the guys are why not? <laughs> because they're your reward. I mean, look at them. Not all that great. But you know what? Isn't this what we usually do? We think, who do you want to invite over? Well, let's invite over somebody who's going to give us this or treat us in this way or maybe help us get a discount or increase our business or uh, move our influence or who's fun and will entertain us or, or whatever. We often think of the person that's going to help us the most. But look at verses 13 jesus corrects this reward seeking mindset and he says but when you give a reception invite the poor the crippled the lame the blind and just stop there the culture is different from ours so people who were poor crippled lame blind depended on relatives friends and just strangers to support them there was no welfare system like our country so there's a little there's a little uh, difficulty I think with people trying to figure out how to apply this text, we'll talk about that in a second. Well, you know, when you see poor, and we've talked about this before, I'm going to keep talking about it because a lot of people think poor is anybody who doesn't have financial resources. No, that's not what it means in a biblical sense. The poor are those who, because of circumstances out of their control, have had things come upon them that no matter how hard they work they can work their fingers to the bone and they're doing everything they can they can't support themselves they can't make ends meet they're poor the bible does not call drunkards poor though they may be financially poor or addicts drug addicts or gamblers or impulsive spenders or lazy people or gluttons Those people, though they might not have any finances, those people may be poor in the world's eyes, but they're not poor in a biblical sense. They're in sin. There's a difference. And when you look at the scriptures, you'll see very clearly that what God says to do about those kind of people, as opposed to those who are truly biblical poor, who because of circumstances find themselves in need. Our country spends seven hundred billion dollars i looked it up this week in the federal budget on human services helping medicare medicaid you know whatever you want to put in there just it is the largest portion of our budget more even than the defense spending which is huge and so in those times they didn't have any of that they didn't have any you know 700 billion dollar spending budget to help people who a lot of times because of their own choice were poor. No, they didn't have anything like that. You had to help them. You had to help them. So Jesus is saying, you know what? When you invite somebody who's blind and crippled and lame and poor to your house, they're, they're, they're not going to be able to repay you. And that's what's cool about it is they can't repay you. That's why Jesus says, if you look at the uh, verse 14 again, you will be blessed since they do not have a means to repay you for you will be repaid at the resurrection of the righteous. Notice Jesus says you will be paid. You will be repaid. Any sacrifice you make and food for them, time for them, energy spent on helping those people who are truly in need. Anytime you give to somebody like that, God's going to repay you for them. He's going to pay your bill. 
One time I took a friend out, my brother and I took a friend out, he was moving and this guy didn't have very much money. So we said, you know what? We're going to take you out to this really nice restaurant and we're paying. And he says, no, no, no. I said, yeah, we're paying. And he says, okay. So we take him out to this nice restaurant, you know, steak and seafood place. We have this great dinner and he has to go to the bathroom. He gets up, he comes back. And so we, we asked the waiter, could we have the check? And um, the waiter says, well, the bill has already been paid. And we look at our friend who's already poor and he's got this smile on his face. And so we start rebuking him and he goes, well, now I really have to go to the bathroom. So he went, he came back and my brother and I, we talked about, we said, well, let's just stuff his jacket pockets full of money (laughs) and we will get back at him. And so what happened was, is he gets on his jacket, his coat, and we're getting ready and we're giving hugs and, you know, we're going to miss you and la, la, la. And he puts his hands in his pocket and I'm thinking to myself, "Uh oh, I hope he doesn't feel those. And um, he doesn't say anything. He says, well, guys, it's been great. And he starts walking towards the door and he starts flicking out $20 bills on the floor. Uh, He knows we're going to pick him up, you know. Uh, He's got this little trail of money. So, you know, we're kind of like chickens behind him, pecking these things up so the waiter, waiter won't get them. Anyways, we finally get to the door. We open the door, and he has sprinted across the parking lot. And he's getting in his car saying, I love you guys. And boom, that's the last we saw of him. Sometimes it backfires. But listen, there's a lot of things here that I could say. I'm just going to give you one principle. If you want to give and not get earthly rewards, like Jesus is saying here, just give anonymously. That's it. That will fix it in every case. That will fix it in every case. And uh, you can give anonymously in a, long, a lot of ways. You know, if you give to missions, you know, missionaries don't get a, like a little receipt saying, well, you know, here's money from Calvary Bible Church. 4% came from so-and-so. 3% came from... They don't get that. They just get a check from Calvary Bible Church and they can't pay you back. You know somebody who's in need in the church? Just drop off the groceries on their porch. Send them the gift certificate, to, you know, with no return address on there. You know, do the doorbell ditch thing. It works. It works. You got to be fast. I mean, you know... <laughs> Um, if you're older, probably don't want to use that technique. You know, they're trying to, uh, get away. Hey, there's so-and-so look at, they left us on their porch. Yeah. Um, make sure you're young enough to get out of the way, um, before they open the door. But yeah, there's a lot of different ways you can give anonymously. And it's so great. I have people, people have given me so many things. It could just go on forever. I've been given money, especially when I was in seminary. Money just, you know, like every time I was just extremely desperate and I was, you know, fretting and asking God to help me. And then I almost lost hope. Then it's like fall out of the skies. We had money in the porch and money in packages and money in the mail and money sent from who knows who and gift certificates and things to just we never knew who gave them to us. We still don't know. You know, when we uh, I remember one time, uh, you know, we. Had I think it was Nate or one of our kids, and you know the insurance paid for part, and we had this huge bill and had to make this like car payment, and we went down there to make the payment, and and uh, you know at the hospital, and there's uh, it's been the bill's been paid, and it's like uh, so how'd that work? <laughs> and um, they said, well, some somebody paid it. I said, well, who? And they said, well, the name's right here. Uh, let me just pull it up, and she pulls up the record and pulls it out of her file, and she says, oh. It's blacked out. And so somebody owns my kid. <laughs> and when they get to heaven, they can have him back. <laughs> That's how it is. I've had uh, books sent to me. I've had uh, uh, I did this one guy at our other church was uh, we called him the book genie. He, we never knew who he was, but he was just a guy that just said, I'll buy the pastors any books they want. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, we had to have this discussion. Do you understand how dangerous that is? You know, I mean, we all want libraries of thousands. Have you ever seen the Library of Congress? Nothing. That's nothing. Um, yeah, and we all want first editions too. Um, yeah, and uh, we just asked for books and they just showed up and we never knew who it is. So, so what happens when that happens? Who do you praise? God. 
Bingo. See that? That's why anonymous giving is so great. You give God the glory. Other people are blessed. blessed, And since they don't know who to thank, who do they thank? God. Then to God be the glory. But then in the resurrection, who repays you? God. That's how to do it. You want to obey the verse? You will be repaid at the resurrection. Give anonymously. Finally, look at verse 15, which is a transition verse between kind of the end of this section and the next one. We'll get into it uh, in the weeks to come. But verse 15, when one of those who were reclining at the table with him heard this, he said to him, blessed is everyone who will eat bread in the kingdom of God. And you know what? That is true. If you just make it into the kingdom, you're going to be blessed. If you just get into the door, even if you're least in the kingdom of heaven, it's going to be incredible. Just get in. Get in. And whoever said this had wisdom enough to realize, you know what? If anybody makes it, it's going to be incredible. It'll be an incredible blessing just to get there. And it's true. And so true godliness starts and continues and never ends with submitting to Jesus' lordship. Secondly, true godliness must be accompanied by humility, a voluntary submission of your will to the will of Christ. And third, true godliness must perform acts of love to God and others, not expecting anything in return to this life, knowing that God will repay you at the resurrection. Those are three huge, huge traits of godliness that all of us need to pray for, pursue, and cultivate in our life by God's grace so that he can be glorified. Well, let's pray. Father, we just thank you for uh, this text and what it teaches us. What a great God you are. I just thank you, Lord, for your kindness to us by giving us your word, by giving us your son, by sending Jesus to die on the cross for our sins. If there be anybody here tonight or today, this today, and um, who doesn't know you, I just pray, Father, that you would you just bless them, that you would open their heart, help them to see the truth. Help them to understand that you are Lord, that they are sinners, that you died in the cross for our sins, were buried and rose again in the third day, and that by trusting in you alone, they can be saved. Oh, Father, make this happen today. Help us all to share the good news that others might come to know Jesus as Lord and then pursue humility and pursue giving out of love for you and love for others, not earthly reward. And Father, in doing that, may we make a huge impact on our community, our friends, our co-workers, as they see us voluntarily take the last place that they, that you might be honored. Father, help us to be that way for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.